Hello everyone, I'm here for one of my stories. This is Lindsay Dunn, and today I'm ready to launch into a explosive, if somewhat belated, discussion about Oppenheimer. Joining me is Evan Kate, co-host of The Leech Podcast, a show about movies that suck the life out of you but also stick with you. They also might be good for you, like a leech. I met Evan recently, and we've been looking for a chance to work together. Hello, Evan, and welcome to one of my stories. Hey, Lindsay. Great to be with you. I would like for you to tell my listeners a little bit about the Leech podcast. I've been listening for a while, but I bet you can explain it better than I can. Well, you did a great job in the opening. That is our tagline. Uh, it's Le The Leech podcast is a show about movies that are painful on the first experience, but the more you sit with them, and maybe if you watch them again, you realize that these movies are actually good for you. They might teach you something or have some kind of medicine even. So our podcast is me, uh, my friends Aaron Jones and Banks Clark, and we all used to teach together and we love talking about movies. And so this idea for The Leech grew out of many of those conversations about film. But you also actually talk about leeches too. It's not just a name and it's not just an idea. You also have facts about leeches right that's true that's very true that's actually one of one of our favorite parts is at the beginning of <laughs> beginning of every episode we take some time to learn about the anatomy and the history of leeches and Aaron usually leads that segment and we've been so fortunate we've actually been able to talk to a number of professional leech researchers and people in the medical community who use leeches for actual medicinal purposes even to this day yeah i've been i've been listening now i think since for a little bit and it's always it's always fun because you know in some some cases you're reviewing movies that have been out there a while you know but their discussions yes. i will say are very rich like i really love mm. the um there will be blood discussion that's that's got to be my favorite so far <laughs> oh i'm glad i'm glad that's my favorite too <laughs> <laughs> daniel plainview such a great character and you guys just bring up great points, stuff that either I haven't heard articulated before or, hey, I already t heard it articulated, but I like hearing about it so much, so I mm. want to hear about it again. I don't mind hearing <laughs> Oh, well, thank you. Well, thanks for listening, and it's just, yeah, I'm really excited to be with you on your pod and, um, and to talk about this movie together. Yeah, so let's get into it. I think, you know, perhaps this, this, this movie is leechy in its own regard, um, Today, mm. we're, of course, discussing Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, which was 50% of the Barbenheimer mania <laughs> that I think the country is still possibly recovering from. So I would like to start with just your overall thoughts about Christopher Nolan as a director. Are you, would you consider yourself a rabid fan, um, fan with caveats, you barely tolerate him, and... After you identify your category, <laughs> I'd like to hear your thoughts about his strengths, weaknesses, and maybe like your top couple movies. Sure. Yeah. So I'm a overall fan with caveats, I would say. I've think I think I think I've seen all of his films except for maybe one or two. And I've enjoyed them. They're always fun at the movies. They're always thought provoking. But I, I think there are some flaws that have shown up in a number of the films that we could talk about. And being a teacher of high school students, some of whom really, really love Christopher Nolan movies, especially mm. some of the guys, I think it um, tempered my appreciation a little bit. Um, just that there's a little bit of a pretentiousness sometimes or, a, I don't know, intellectual arrogance 
almost that uh, that I see now in the films that I didn't maybe early on. But I, I still overall enjoy the experience of a Christopher Nolan movie. Mm-hmm. So what what do you see as the the strengths and weaknesses of this director? I'd love to know. Just like you said, there's some maybe flaws. Besides being potentially pretentious, what what else would you say about him? Well, I think to his credit, he creates utterly immersive big movie experiences. And he mm-hmm. tries to tackle these gigantic topics, right? So Interstellar is about going beyond our known solar system to create a new place for humans to live. Um, he talks about, you know, he inceptions about diving into the depths of dreams and consciousness. So he, he takes big swings and he backs it up in so many great ways with the sound uh, designs that he creates. Uh, there's some always amazing cinematography. The editing is tight. It's crisp. It's propulsive. You always feel like you're moving in his films. They are the kind of films that should be experienced in a great theater like an IMAX where you get the full uh, immersive experience. And then I think another great strength that I think is maybe also a weakness in certain ways, though, is that he his plots have these very meticulous, almost puzzle-like structures. Mm-hmm. Uh, not something that shows up in the first act will probably show up in the third act, but with a twist. He doesn't usually leave pieces out there that aren't uh, tied together in some way by the end. So he's really meticulous with plotting, and he just creates films that are visually and sonically pretty stunning overall. Right. I don't think I heard any weaknesses or flaws in there. <laughs> well, I guess if you want, I could jump in with what I like about him, maybe. Yeah, um, like but yeah, I mean, I would I would put myself in the rabid fan category. I can't help it. I I hope you know. I hope I'm not a pretentious person, um, <laughs> Evan. But perhaps oh. I am. <laughs> I mean, I think I think that to an extent, I am okay with. I'm on board with whatever he does, just because he's provided so many great movie experiences for me, and not just the movies themselves. I really value discussion. And so I love that I've been able to have so many great discussions about his movies and about the ideas that he's putting into his movies because it's never just the plot itself. The plots can be convoluted and twisty, but there's usually a theme or a grand Mm. idea that's in there somewhere, and you can really chew on that idea. I also appreciate how he doesn't spoon-feed these ideas or tell us how we're supposed to feel about things. He's not emotionally manipulative. And in fact, people have sometimes accused him of being dry or unemotional. But I love that you have to approach his movies and pay attention to what's going on. You can't really decide you're going to dip out and dip back in. It takes concentration. I even liked, I'm probably one of the few people, there were so many complaints about Tenet, but I think I've watched... I love Tenet. (laughs) Okay. I've watched Tenet many times now, and I'm still, I still could probably watch it a dozen more just because I still don't fully understand. (laughs) understand. Um, Yeah, that's totally, totally. I I love that one. Yeah. (laughs) I think you're right. I think... You have to pay attention while being in a Nolan film. And I think I think that is like to his credit. I mean, he just knows how to make movies that draw you into sometimes difficult themes, complicated plots. And yet he has pretty large appeal to a mass audience. So he's able to tell complicated stories at a high level to a big audience, which is no small feat. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I agree with what you say. His movies are, tend to be very immersive. The music is loud. The the yes. the colors, the production design. You kind it's a very sensory experience. So I really enjoy yes. that. I like how he plays around with narratives and the concept of time and there might be a movie going backwards or there might be a yes. movie with with a flashback or like in this movie where you have like different colors so he's not afraid to experiment with movies and sort of put himself out there and do something that hasn't been done before or you know perhaps he's inspired other people to be able to now tell tell different kinds of stories here you know him him doing memento it's probably you know memento is probably still one of probably one of my favorites of his movies i'm i when people force me to say which one's my favorite it's usually memento because one of the things i appreciate about that movie is it's a little simpler you know in a way even though it's yes. it's going backwards there was a minimalism to that movie we had like very few cast members the sets aren't fancy so it's a little bit less immersive and still still you are engaged fully the whole time and so he could do it even without the bangs and whistles. I so, totally yeah. agree. And Memento's in my top top three Nolan films as well, or mm-hmm. top whatever films. Yeah. I think sometimes his stories, if I'm going to pick some weaknesses, I would say that sometimes the plots are so complex and convoluted that I do lose some of the emotional connection to the characters. And I sometimes think that his female characters could be a little more fully rounded than the male mm-hmm. characters. Or as fully rounded as some of the male characters. Um, I'd be interested, actually, to hear what you think of some of the characters in Oppenheimer. Uh, in like that, like the regard. female characters. Do you mean the female yes, characters? Or yeah, just, okay. Kitty yeah. and Jean and uh, Ruth and some of the others. But but I think if we're, I mean, but it, Memento's in my top Nolan movies. I think The Dark Knight is maybe an obvious choice, but is, is still is great. And I know there's some flaws maybe with it, but I think Inception. I've seen that movie so many times and mm-hmm. always enjoy enjoy it. And then an honorable mention for me, which I only saw recently for the first time, and it's definitely too long and a little shaggy around the edges, <laughs> but I thought Interstellar was kind of... Um, he was really taking some swings with it, and mm-hmm. there were parts I really liked, parts that didn't work for me, but I, I thought that one was a really intriguing one that I want to come back to. Definitely. I also have really love Interstellar, I think sometimes that one, yeah, it does get panned, especially if people are like, the science in this is incorrect, or, um, <laughs> and, <laughs> but I, I really do, um, I really do love Tenet, and I, ha- I'm in love with that score. I also appreciate how it was almost like, you know, Christopher Nolan's been, to, you know, working this way up from like these plot things, and here's this like totally abstract movie that doesn't even, the character is even named the protagonist. So it's like, right. we're not even giving this guy a name at this point. He's just, he's more of an idea. The character is more of an idea than an actual character. And just the, the permission to do that and how much, how the movie's really kind of a, a mess sound wise. But, um, yes. But yeah, I really like the prestige, I think, because yeah. that. Mm-hmm the acting and I always I always feel like connected to his character you said sometimes the plots 
the complication of the plots keep you from um, keep you from feeling connected to the characters. And I know a lot of people feel that way. I usually feel quite connected to the characters. I don't know what it was. It is that he does, but he just directs people in this way that even if a person's on the screen, <clears throat> you know, talk about Oppenheimer. There are people that are on the screen for like five seconds, and you're like, "Wow, look, there's that Academy Award-winning <laughs> actor right. there." That's so in many movie. in Oppenheimer. So many. <laughs> Um, but he gave everybody this profile of what they were supposed to do. And it kind of reminds me of how Val, I don't know if you've seen like the movie Val, Val Kilmer, you know, he was, when he was in his movies, oh, no. no matter how his small role his was, like if he was in a movie for like one scene, he would create a backstory for his character and write it out and like, carry that with him. Like for Iceman, he had all this this backstory about Iceman <laughs> that he had made up that nobody asked him to. It's kind of like Christopher Nolan might be doing that for this for this character. I feel like that here's a thirty page you know dossier about your character that's going to th- walking into this barber shop. You know, so oh, totally, totally it's wild. <laughs> but okay. So we've talked about Christopher Nolan and our like griefs and our griefs about him and yeah I don't mostly, know if I said any, mine. <laughs> yeah I don't know if I said any griefs. Um, do I have any qualms with him? I mean yeah his his treatment of of women in general probably isn't the best. We'd like to have some more exciting characters, but I don't. I guess I'm not really complaining about that just yet. <laughs> But but yeah, so this is only his second historical film, Dunkirk being the first. And going into this movie, I'm just wondering if you had any expectations of what you would see, especially since his usual sandbox is like the speculative realm. You know, he does science fiction, he does time travel, he does um, he does like kind of thrillers and mysteries. So. Here's this biopic, right. <laughs> you know, biopic uh, thing. So going into the movie, what did you kind of expect to see on screen, if anything? So I thought, well, it's a, yeah, it's a great question. I like Dunkirk quite a bit. And so I kind of liked when Nolan tethered himself to history or to, to historical realities in some ways. I thought that was good for him. And so I figured, okay, this is a really important scientific person from the 20th century. It's a complicated person who made a big discovery, uh, and there's a, this big weight of history attached to it. That, that content-wise felt like it was right up Nolan's alley, right? So many of his characters in many movies are these complicated males, there's a big scientific discovery, and there's something that is, has world-shattering consequences based on that. So I thought it was right up his alley. I figured, like all of his films, it would be visually and sonically stunning. And then I did read some of the hype before the release. So I think Nolan talked about Oppenheimer as one of the most important, or if not the most important, historical figures ever. Uh, The filmmaker Paul Schrader called the film incredibly important. And then Florence Pugh, who's in the cast, said it was the best and most professional set she'd ever worked on. So I had pretty high expectations coming into it, both in Mm -hmm. terms of the content and the the execution of the film. Yeah. I just know that a lot of... Some of the complaints I've heard, well, that people mostly make fun of, are that <laughs> people... A lot of people went into Oppenheimer expecting, 
like more action or more, I don't know, more explosions, really? more. Um, <laughs> there's one. Yeah, big one. <laughs> that, that there's yeah, there's one good one because the poster, if you think about the poster, it has like this big, you know, the world's on fire. Sure. And yet and, and we're also in IMAX. But yet the movie was a lot of talking. It was that whole like we're in the hallway talking or we're in the room talking. Lots of discussions. And it's not normally the kinds of topics you would get an IMAX experience on. And so yeah. then many people left disappointed or thinking this movie's boring because it was it was not action movie <laughs> or more of that kind of thing or showing showing the destruction. Um, that is another thing I've heard that like, oh, they didn't show the bomb being dropped and what people might have experienced. And that definitely isn't in the movie. We, you know, if anything, we see no. that only through by watching Oppenheimer watch footage and seeing his face and getting to experience that, the his horror yes. viscerally through what he's experiencing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, so, and I think yeah. that's fair. But I, I, for me, it's so interesting that people felt that way. I, I w was riveted for three hours. I didn't move mm -hmm. in my seat. <laughs> I often will get up in the middle of a movie and go to the bathroom or get a glass of water or something. And I, I didn't move for three hours. Mm -hmm. And it was totally... So I, maybe I'm not like uh, some of those audience members. Yeah. Well, obviously you're not. And I think most people that are really into perhaps movies like all kinds of movies, not necessarily just action movies, that they, you know, most people aren't necessarily disappointed. I think the trailers don't give a lot away. I had heard about, I had heard, had heard rumors about the Trinity test and that that was going uh -huh. to be a big, important scene. Uh, but I, I didn't actually spend a lot of time, you know, looking at, you know, footage or anything like that. I did... I did look, like, I think the day, a couple days before the movie came out, I thought, I looked up if there's movies they thought people should watch before they watch Oppenheimer to mm. understand that better. And I did find a few, like, documentaries of footage about, it was, there was a movie, like, Atomic Cafe, I think was the name of it. It's on YouTube. Uh -huh. And they show all the propaganda that was released before and after to kind of convince people that nuclear energy was safe and to sort of okay. drum up political support for the creation of the bomb and wasn't it great so that was that was kind of interesting there's another also another one that's narrated by <laughs> by um the star trek guy uh shatner um oh william shatner yeah <laughs> william shatner um where he's does a, has a different documentary but you know, when the movie when the movie begins, there's all this background, kind of history about his life and the trials and all that starts where they're showing this footage. But me as like a person that didn't know a lot about that, so it was a little hard to kind of follow. And so for me, my first viewing was what you said before. You alluded to the experience of watching a movie, and I was just kind of engaged in the experience of the visuals and... Um, the emotions or what I could get out of the emotions. Mm -hmm. And then the second viewing, I was able to take in more of the information and kind of go in a little bit more informed and follow the actual story itself be uh, better about the events that transpired and in what, what order they transpired. And 
sort of content-wise, it made more sense to me. So I'm curious what your experience was. You've watched it twice as well. What were those different movie experiences like for you? Well, like you said, the first time through, very riveting, couldn't take my eye off the screen. I found the first part where it tells his backstory, uh, his studies in Europe and so on, I thought that was amazing and so beautiful and interesting and um, I think really informs what happens later, but we can get to that. But I, I so I was just totally immersed in it, totally mm-hmm. um, stuck on the screen. And then on the second watch, I definitely caught a lot more of the interpersonal dynamics among the characters. I, I got a better sense of the timelines and where the different conversations are happening, including in the, um, both of the kind of kangaroo courts that, that, <laughs> that take place, the different trials between, you know, Oppenheimer on one and Strauss on the other. So I got a better, clearer sense of the history, better sense of the relational dynamics. And, and I think I saw just a little nitpicky things in the script that I, you know, didn't work for me, but so I, maybe I was a little more critical by the end. But I, I still was surprised in the second viewing by how moved I was by the Trinity test and a couple of the scenes after that uh, mm-hmm. that really moved me in the first viewing as well. So a lot of it did really hold up. Yeah. Um, don't, don't get me wrong. I did like the beginning, especially because he sort of they're kind of showing how his brain works on the screen, which is which is wild and crazy. Uh-huh. But I'm just saying that that as far as being if it wasn't easy to follow or not. No, it wasn't exactly because they're kind of jumping right. But they're jumping between the different timelines. And that's actually the next topic I want to totally. talk about is the structure of the movie. So we have these dueling narratives and timelines. There's the Strauss hearing where they're voting to see if they will make him Secretary of Commerce. And that lasts the entire movie, kind of once Mm -hmm. in one continuum that we're seeing interspersed throughout the movie. Then we also have the hearing. It's not a trial, it's a hearing, Um, (laughs) Evan, (laughs) where the people will decide if Oppenheimer will retain his security clearance, and we kind of see that almost multiple times, both can see it in color and in black and white. And then we have the color sections that are flashbacks of the actual events that Oppenheimer's on trial for and show the events leading up to the trials. And so how did watching, how did the structure impact your overall viewing experience? So I'd say on the first watch, I found the structure created a lot of propulsion toward the finish. It felt like this story of, oh, I'm trying to understand all of these finite parts of his backstory that led to the bomb. I knew he was the creator of the bomb, so I figured a lot of the movie was about what are the pieces Mm -hmm. of his life story that lead him to be the leader of the Manhattan Project and develop the bomb that's detonated in Los Alamos. So I felt the film, especially in the first two-thirds, moved really quickly and I would say really engagingly toward that that bomb test. And then I'd say the final third where they, they come back to those different hearings, that on the first watch was really interesting. There was so much history and so much interpersonal stuff there that I had, didn't know anything about. I'd never heard of the Strauss guy. I thought Downey <laughs> yeah. was doing this amazing performance. <laughs> um, and I just was really intrigued by it. And I think that twist of Strauss seeming like such a nice guy at the beginning, but really by the end of the movie, you realize he's kind of the bad guy, kind of a heel, at least Mm -hmm. towards Oppenheimer. I think on the first viewing, that really buoys the structure, and it has that little Nolan-y twist at the end, like, oh my goodness, this guy, he's actually the bad guy. Um, And then he gets his comeuppance, too, and that's really satisfying, I guess, by the end. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it definitely, like, although it was a little bit, like I said, convoluted, but you're trying to ex- ex- understand, because I didn't know Strauss was either. I knew that there was this color scheme and that the black and white sections were supposed to be objective and the color ones subjective. I don't know if my brain mm. was able to process that. Like, I wasn't sitting there going, oh, this is black and white, so it's objective, and this one's in color. So it's subjective, although you kind of experience the subjective because that's the stuff where there's almost, you know, this visceral experience of him with, they do it through the sound design where you're not just seeing what's going on in the room where Oppenheimer is, but you're seeing like how he feels about what's going on around him through the, through the visuals and the sound design and you're feeling his unease and anxiety through that. But so we were, we're watching you know, you're feeling that it's subjective because obviously it's in his head. Um, uh-huh. But it was interesting when they when they go back and show the hearing and that Strauss arranged the whole thing that then you kind of, the pieces are sort of falling in place. And that's a very familiar Christopher Nolan device where you're like, oh, they withheld this information from you so that you could... It just helps you engage with the movie, I think, in a deeper way. And seeing the seeing the Albert Einstein <laughs> hat scene like three times, right. <laughs> three or four times, you're like, why is this so important? You know, why do we keep seeing this hat scene? And that, you know, the little, the Albert Einstein dude becomes this, um, you know, I've heard people say like, oh, this is the Avengers moment in Oppenheimer where... You know, he is like, <laughs> we're forming a team, you know, and all this, you know, Albert Einstein and Oppenheimer. That's so um, funny. <laughs> but it, you know, it would have been so easy to kind of go through everything chronologically, right? And try to make sense. But your brain is trying to kind of process this. So you're able to experience this rise and fall of Oppenheimer better. And that's how I kind of think about this is that he, you know, there was this sort of, like you said, the word propulsion. There was this energy towards the Trinity test. Like everybody was working together on this, getting this thing done, you know. And so they had all these different scientists in the room together that normally wouldn't be working together because they're doing different types of science. But it was a project. So he got everybody to work together. And then there's almost this, like, deterioration. Well, thanks for your service, and now you stand over here while all those big war guys do the real work over here, and now you're out. And so I feel like the different perspectives helped you experience that sort of mentality. I think it's the same thing I see, like, in movies about samurai. Like, thanks for fighting with us, and now please leave our village because we're scared of you and our <laughs> women like you better than us. Um, oh, that's awesome. Anyway, yeah. Well, and I think the structure, by opening with Strauss on, in his hearing as well, it makes the audience, I think, sympathize with him. And mm-hmm. for most of the movie, yeah. I was rooting for him to be approved and to become you know, the Commerce Secretary, just like I was rooting for Oppenheimer to get a security clearance in that other tri- uh, trial. Mm-hmm. But the, and, and it does another nifty thing where it gives you instant sympathy for Strauss without telling any of his backstory, really. You just mm-hmm. jump right in with him as being sort of under fire. Now, the film is called Oppenheimer, so it's going to give the backstory for Oppenheimer. But it makes that twist all the more powerful at the end when we're rooting for both of these guys, knowing that they've had conflict, and then the twist is, oh, actually, Strauss has been working against Oppenheimer, sowing division, uh, creating this sort of conspiracy around him at every turn. 
And so all of a sudden, we're, we're now switching our allegiance. We're still with Oppenheimer, but we're now hoping that Strauss doesn't get approved. And I think that creates this lovely narrative tension for the final third. Mm-hmm. Well, I do want to talk um, about Oppenheimer and, the, and then Strauss and their different characters. So maybe that would be a good place to go next. So Killian Murphy playing Oppenheimer. What do you think about his performance and what did his performance communicate about the person of Oppenheimer that you feel like, you know, either worked or didn't work for you? So in the first viewing, I was I said to myself, I think Killian Murphy is great in this movie, but I'm not sure why. <laughs> <laughs> I know he's I know I'm drawn in. I know I'm kind of hanging on every word, but I don't know why. And so yeah. on the second viewing, I, I think I have a little bit better sense of it, which is that in the first part of the movie, we're watching him encounter these paradoxes, right? He's he, his the physics that he's interested in tells you that matter is both a sound or is both a wave and a particle. Mm-hmm. These things that's, that can't be both true, but somehow are. And so that's the science he's into. And then those scenes where he's looking at art, right? Like Picasso and Cubists and modern paintings. Right. All of that art is about these paradoxes, like things that should not go together, going together. And he's then, you know, thrown into this scene at Berkeley and he's, he's someone who's both a communist and not a communist. He's mm-hmm. married. <laughs> yeah. And still seeing Gene, he's mm-hmm. he, he's a, a cluster of contradictions. And I thought Murphy just portrayed all of that so persuasively and holding all those pieces together. But then I think after the bomb explodes, something happens to him. And just like something happens to the world after the bomb explodes, it's it can't. There are unintended consequences. There's fallout. There's the world has changed. And Oppenheimer, too, has changed. And I think he was able to hold together the contradictions, and that led to this very successful scientific discovery, personal career uh, accomplishment. But that bomb shatters something in him, and he can't hold those pieces together anymore. And so I think the rest of the film is really all these people saying, like, what do you believe in? Where do you actually stand morally, uh, Mm -hmm. ethically, about the bomb? And I don't know. It's not clear to me. And I think Murphy portrays how opaque... Oppenheimer is after the detonation of the bomb. He had once held together contradiction and paradox, and now he doesn't seem to be able to, or the world won't let him anymore. Wow, that's quite an insight. <laughs> all that about him holding all the his char- very character being a paradox. That's that's an interesting take for sure. That um, that I really like. Um, but yeah, I think when he had a clear direction leading up to the Trinity test. Um, he uh-huh. had that clear direction of, you know, you're the project manager and your job is to get all these people to work together to get this, to get a bomb, to get a working bomb. And that mm-hmm. is something that he was able to do because he had this very special skill set. And even, I remember the, um, Will, uh, Miles Teller, he says to Oppenheimer, you're not a, you're not a scientist anymore. You haven't been for a while. You're, I think he says you're a manager. Um, you know, you're managing people. Or and like so a politician he was, or, a, or like a bureaucrat. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. A politician. Yeah. He's like, he just says, I just remember him saying, you're not a scientist anymore. You're, you're in this different role. And so he had this directive, but it was like, okay, now that, now I've created this was it actually like the right idea? But it wasn't something he had asked himself up until that point. 
And he was kind of thinking that we just need to get this made before the Germans was the original idea. Like, we need to be the first to get this. Just the same as, you know, we need to be the first people to launch the man on the moon, you know. Of course, perhaps the stakes weren't quite as quite as high for that, but this is like, the, dis- the world could be destroyed. But, like, we need to get this first. And so he had that clear direct direction, and I think after that, he no longer knew exactly where he fit in. Well, now I've created this, now I've created this bomb, and and they've, they've actually used it. As soon as we had it, they used it. It wasn't, how long did they actually talk about it before they decided they were going to use it? And now I feel remorse, or at least that's how it's portrayed in the movie. Now, some people think, oh, yeah, he just waited until it went off to get sad sack about it. You know, whether, whether it's true or not that he felt this level of, of guilt about it, I'm not sure I'm informed enough to say. But it, it was just after the creation itself, he doesn't know what to do. And especially when they're like going to revoke his security clearance, then it's like, well, where do I go then? Because I am, he was a scientist and a politician, you know, so he'd become this different thing. It's not like he could just uh-huh. go back to regular science dude in the lab. <laughs> he was, he had sort of ostracized himself almost from from both communities. He do, He wasn't... He didn't fit in in either world. He's not really a politician, and he's not really a scientist anymore. And so I think that loss of perhaps identity is what is what they're communicating. But yeah, he had these these haunted, sad eyes that they really manipulated really good <laughs> on the screen to show this to show this chaos inside of him. I guess would be a good word for it. Yeah, he's caught between two worlds, right? Like you said, mm-hmm. he's not a scientist. He's not a scientist enough anymore, but he's also not adept at playing the political game either. Clearly, do you, mm-hmm. so. Do you do you buy Murphy's performance, or is there did that did he capture that for you in a special way? Oh yeah, I mean, he's a, it's a tremendous performance. But yeah, exactly. But but like, I think I'm still pondering over what you said. Like exactly, what is it? Is that he? Um, like I was thinking even before and slightly after when I saw this, I was looking at his film catalog, right? And uh-huh. the fact that Christopher Nolan has used him in all these movies so far, but just as a side character. <clears throat> and in his in a lot of his ro- in the roles that he have been picked for him, for instance, we have the sol- the soldier that's having the PTSD in in Dunkirk. You know, we have the character of Scarecrow in in the Batman films, and we have um, the character in Inception of the executive right. son who's um, trying to sort of get mini revenge on his father who's dying. <clears throat> These are all very lonely characters that, um, with a lot of internal strife, that don't really seem to have close relationships with other people. And I think that's what Oppenheimer needed to be. You know, he was um, he was well liked. But how many people could he actually, did he actually feel safe to talk to? Who was he emotionally close to? This is a very emotionally Mm. isolated guy. And I feel like that's the MO that he's carried with him, perhaps through his career. I'm not familiar with actually with too much of his movies or or stuff um, outside of Christopher Nolan films. Like I haven't seen Peaky Blinders, for instance. But I'm wondering if that's what his, his strength is, is playing these people with deep sort of internal wells that, um, you know, connection with other people is hard to come by. Yeah, he, there's an emotional reserve that's sort of as steep as those steep 
beautiful cheekbones on his face, you know. Um, but yeah, I thought <laughs> no, it, I, totally I thought agree. it was a and great I think performance. I, yeah, but go ahead. No, I, I, I've only seen a little bit of Peaky Blinders, but I think he does also there have charisma and leadership qualities that draw people to him, but has a reserve to uh, some similarly to to Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. Although like I think it's... the Oppenheimer canvas gives him so much to do uh, that some other roles haven't, which is really fun to see. Yeah, it's it's, and I'm wondering. I mean, I have my own opinion about it, but which I'll let I'll share. But like with Oppenheimer, do you think we're supposed to we're supposed to like him? Are we supposed to think he's a good guy? Like, do you think the movie makes a statement about that at all? I think pretty admirably it doesn't. I mean, I think Nolan thinks that Oppenheimer is incredibly important and is a complicated person who is worth spending some time with, like unpacking why they did what they did and unpacking their history and their impact on the country and the world. But there are ways that you could make this far more uh, hagiographical, right? You could do far more, like a biopic that just praises Oppenheimer. That's, that's not this movie. Mm-hmm. It, it shows all the warts, all the flaws. I mean, this guy doesn't raise his firstborn child for a significant <laughs> period of time. Just <clears throat> drops him off at his friend's house, right? Yeah. He doesn't always treat women very well and and he's you know he's i think sleeping around with his friends wives um he's he goes back on some promises like he they show the warts and the flaws that oppenheimer uh, has and yet i do think there is an attention to him and to his moral quandary and qualms after the detonation of the bombs in japan that i think nolan does want us to sit with and to think about what we've actually unleashed by creating these bombs that Oppenheimer himself articulates to some extent. And I think that is what Nolan wants us to sit with too. So I guess that's maybe a complicated. No, <laughs> yes no, and. that's good. I yeah. I, I feel the same way. I don't think they're portraying him as a hero um, or necessarily like somebody to emulate. Like you said, the whole, like, I'm going to drop my kid off. If not, it, and not only did the guy, he did he drop his kid off, but he just walked in the door and handed his child to the first woman he saw and didn't even say anything. He did. Wild. He, he does. Wild. <laughs> he does, like, ask his friend later, is this okay? But he just kind of walked in and handed the, handed the baby to that woman, to the woman's wife and didn't say anything. So I was like, okay. Um, yeah. But yeah, he's, a, he's obviously a very talented, very intelligent person. Who was who was a little egotistical, but he genuinely did also value other people. Um, I'm going to save some of these thoughts for after we talk about Strauss because I want to compare yeah. the two of them and their characters. So let's talk about his character. How was what did you think about Strauss's character overall as you as you watch him interact? One nice thing about the Strauss character is that I had no preconceived notions about him. I'd never heard of him. And so in part based on the script and in part based on Robert Downey Jr.'s performance, I just got to meet this really fascinating person. And I was totally enthralled by the maneuverings he was doing and his motivations. So I thought he was really crafty, really interesting, and in a lot of ways carried the third act of the film. So much of it is told as he's narrating what he's done back to these political folks that he's working with and a lot hinges on him. So, so I was sitting with that. So I really was taken by him on the first viewing on the second viewing and some of the opening scenes, there's like a one fission and it shows Oppenheimer. And then there's a two fusion Mm -hmm. and it shows Strauss. 
And I think, you know, on a literal level, right, uh, Oppenheimer supported fission, which was the, the nuclear technology that created the atomic bomb, whereas fusion is the nuclear technology that creates the hydrogen bomb, which Strauss mm-hmm. supported. So there's, I think there's some basic stuff going on there. But what's interesting, I think, is metaphorically that it's kind of flipped. I think Oppenheimer, like you described, he brings people together. He fuses, he, he binds and combines atoms together to do a big project and to create something spectacular. Whereas fission is this process by which the atom is split. And I think that's actually what we learn is what Strauss is doing throughout the film. He's actually splitting things up, dividing, hmm. dividing and conquering even. And so I, I, I thought that character was utterly fascinating and really kept my attention in the final third of the film. Yeah. And Robert Downey, he did a lot with that performance, <laughs> being the, he like did. you said, the person, because we initially side with him because he seems to be such, in a way, he's such an admirer of Oppenheimer. He's saying, like, I wanted to hire him and this is why and all, and all of this, but... Um, I feel like the movie, for me, does make a very clear statement. As as unclear as the statement it makes about Oppenheimer, I felt like it did sort of clearly state something about Strauss and specifically comparing their two characters. Because you had um, you have Strauss, who has, you know, he's a man of import, and, and he has built his way up. You know, he was part of this atomic commission, and now he's, like, reached the level where he's perhaps going to be on the cabinet, you know. He's putting on this guise of being the humble servant, but yet we see, like, internally he has this core of bitterness towards Oppenheimer that's been somewhat hidden. And that his resentment goes way back. Like, he's holding this grudge from... From years ago, I don't know how many years ago it's supposed to be, but he is—he's like a snake, the snake in the grass. You know, he didn't make a fuss at the time, but he has just continued to hold that grudge and let it fester. And he's read—he's been creating this path of a way that he could exact this revenge. It's very—it's very devious. Um, Uh huh. And so he's gotten all the support, but he has this almost an internal lack or a weakness inside of him that eventually comes out and is not attractive to people. So, like, with Oppenheimer, he worked with people and he was very, you know, he was dabbling in working with, like, communist groups, union. I mean, he wasn't wasn't a communist, but he was talking to (laughs) communists and sending money through communist channels. And he was doing things people did not approve of, yet he was also not embarrassed or hiding any of those things. In fact, he tells Strauss, you know, you want to make sure you know everything about me because, you know, if, you, if you're going to give me this role, there's something, there's stuff in my past. So he was trying to come, trying to come clean that way. And there was this respect. So even the people who during the trials were kind of, a, kind of testifying against him even, who might have said, um, no, I don't think he should have a security clearance anymore. They still wanted to shake his hand. They still wanted to, um, like Teller says, I do not believe that he's against this country and I won't believe it ever until it's proven to me. You know, So he stood up for his, his friend. And then we had Einstein, who had a big problem with the fact that he was building a bomb that could be used to hurt people. But Einstein was still his friend. He still made time for him. He wasn't not shaking his hand. And so I felt like 
you know, Oppenheimer might have been shunned by the political realm and shunned by, um, in some ways, the scientific realm, but yet the people he worked with still carried this respect, whereas Strauss at the end, the guy was barely wanting to be in the same room with him. You know, he's kind of like, get away from me, you're gross. <laughs> now I've realized what a gross person you are. <laughs> so I, I just felt yeah, that their their contrast was fascinating. Yeah, I agree. You're helping me see, too, that I think Oppenheimer on the surface is pretty arrogant, seeming. Right. But internally, or with close people... He's kind of humble and generous and open, at least honest. Mm -hmm. Whereas Strauss seems gregarious and generous on the surface, but internally is quite bitter and vindictive. And the film does show, I think, that it's better to be like Oppenheimer than Strauss, because even though Oppenheimer was arrogant and was sort of alienated from the scientific community, at the end of the day, the scientific community comes back around Mm -hmm. and defends him and protects him and, and defeats Strauss, in fact. So I think, yeah, I think that contrast between them is really important and is played out in the outcomes of their different paths. So we can, we can talk more about those guys, but I wondered if there were other notable performances that you really admired. It's probably cliche at this point, but Matt Damon was really good, I thought. <laughs> I thought he, you know, he, he seemed like a little bit older so it's like a different phase of the Matt Damon experience, but I thought he was, he was funny. I thought he had gravitas. I believed him as a general. I believed him as an engineering student. Um, and I believed him as someone who was also capable of maneuvering Oppenheimer and this project. So I thought, I thought Damon, I couldn't, I thought he was great in every scene. Hmm, fair enough. Um, did he not work for you? No. He was okay. I, I, I felt like I did say what was it was interesting that he was kind of the handler. You know, he was like handling uh -huh. the scientists. And I felt there was another role where I was like, he did kind of the same thing there. And I can't remember what the role was, but it was like he was he was he was kind of the liaison between the scientists and the political people. Um, so I thought, I don't know, I felt like... Oh, I have Anybody could have, <laughs> almost like anybody could have played that role. Um, oh, fair. Yeah. Interesting. I, I did Who like... Who stood out to you? Benny Safdie as as Oh, he Teller. was good. Yeah. As Teller. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I thought his role was really intriguing and how he was... Yeah. I mean, some people looked at it as... I was kind of surprised people were like, oh, it was a betrayal. Teller betrayed him. But he didn't like out and out... Like that other guy did, um, David Damanchiel or whatever. He didn't like say like, this man is a communist. Like he was, Teller said, you know, I don't think he's a communist. He's not a traitor. Um, but I don't mm -hmm. agree with some of the decisions that he made, you know? So, and his, obviously his wife, Kitty was really pissed off at that guy <laughs> and said, you know, you shouldn't have shook, yeah. shook his hand. Um, but I thought his role was definitely interesting how, you know, he had sort of an out and another, he was another outsider person. And so an Oppenheimer respects that about him. And in fact, he, you know, once he's ready to not, he doesn't want to work with the team. He says, let's the two of you, the two of us talk because, you know, he's been the one that his professor said, you're not good enough. Your math isn't good enough. So you stay in the lab. So, but like Oppenheimer wanted to make sure that he knew how much he valued him as a member of the team, you know? So, yeah. That also reminded me of uh, one of the early scenes at Berkeley when Oppenheimer only has one student. And he yeah. says, I'm just going to teach this one student. And <laughs> it's, he basically does that again with Teller in the midst of the Manhattan Project, you know. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, Florence Pugh was great as Jean Tatlock. She did great with her with her few scenes, as well as Emily Blunt. Um, again, they the characters could have been could have been perhaps more expansive, but I thought they did they did good with their roles. Um, I love both those actresses. I wish there had been more. I wish they'd had more to do. Um, I thought the third act gave Emily Blunt uh, a great scene in the, mm-hmm. the hearing and yeah. some great scenes where she sees clearly who the real threats are, I think probably before Oppenheimer does, but, but agreed. I think there could have been more for her. So then notable scenes, we could probably spend a long time on this, but what (laughs) you've already mentioned the Trinity test, how that was, what was watching the Trinity test like for you? I kept waiting for the sound to come in. And even (laughs) though I knew it was coming, (laughs) I was like, I know there's going to be some gigantic sound. It still surprised me. It still hurt my ears. And it did it to me both times I saw the film. So it's, I think that's one of the great feats of this film is is somehow capturing that moment um, in a way that obviously none of us were there, but felt um, lived in and just took you right into that moment. Mm-hmm. How did that, did that scene work for you or how did you feel? Oh it? yeah, like I was, I was like, I mean, I haven't been in such anticipation in a long time for, for a particular scene to come about, like... I was on, I felt like I was on the edge of my seat and like I couldn't breathe for him, but it, it did. Uh-huh. Uh, I was really surprised about the silence that comes and then just watching them, watching the explosion and their like fascination with it as well as terror and just, yeah, I mean, and the fact that he created the whole thing without CGI it's just this wild and amazing that anybody would would dare do that. Like, who would have the gall to do something like that today? I love it. No I expense it. is spared. <laughs> totally. And, you know, all credit to Christopher Nolan. I think very few filmmakers could dare to do it, could do it, and would get the permission from studios to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I do love that the montage where he's going to the to the college and going to the art museum. You mentioned that scene coupled with Ludwig Göransson's score and just hear you feeling him him feeling the music or hearing the music and the, yes. watching the glasses yes. break in the corner. That sort of montage of that kind of communicates the amount of learning all the stuff his brain is processing at the same time that's a just a cinematic amazing moment for me as well there that's so funny so my you asked me to come up with some scenes and my first one was the trinity test and my second was that montage that just utterly propulsive visual storytelling yeah yeah i felt the same way i was i was uh it felt almost romantic as he's like looking at these paintings and the music You you feel like you're getting swept up in the ideas of the time it's also showing his anxiety, of course, and failures, and but he's also meeting new people. He meets Izzy for the first time on a train. He meets Heisenberg, this great scientist. I just thought, like, visually and in such a compact amount of time and space, Nolan tells us so much about Oppenheimer and his development, mm-hmm. and in a way that is unforgettable. I mean, it's just the power of movies right there. Mm-hmm. What else? I'd say the other, the other scene, though, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts about it. It's... It's after the bomb test, and Oppenheimer delivers a speech to a mm. cheering crowd in a in an old, looks like a high school gym or something, with a basketball hoop behind him. It's very, like, Americana, I don't know, mid, mid-20th century. It's very loud. They're, they're stomping their feet. And there's this moment of long silence, and then an explosion of applause. And 
Oppenheimer gives this kind of rah-rah, you know, I bet the Japanese didn't like the bomb kind of mm-hmm. speech. And the second viewing, I, at first I kind of saw it as a realistic portrayal of something that might have happened. On the second viewing, I thought, oh, this is, this is maybe more metaphorical or dreamlike or something. I just thought that moment captured how Oppenheimer was grappling with the reception of the bomb and what the mm-hmm. bomb meant. So much of his focus had been about making the bomb, and now he's dealing with the explosion of what the bomb means, mm-hmm. first to Americans, but also eventually to others as well. So that, that scene's really sticking with me. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I almost, <laughs> like, that is definitely one of the best scenes in the movie too, but it had, had left my, my brain. But yes, that's that's one of the best scenes in the movie for sure with the noise and the stamping in the bleachers and the internal conflict he's going through and seeing the people their faces, and then you have the silence alternating with the music. And in fact, when there's that sound of, like, marching uh-huh. um, with the steps, and I believe earlier in the movie, during the trial, or the hearing, <laughs> <laughs> he, is, he is hearing the sound of those, of those footsteps or feet marching in the bleachers. He's hearing that in his head as he's answering questions from people. So they, you know, and they have no idea that this is what he's hearing. And for him, that moment is etched in his memory forever is that he released this bomb and everybody was cheering. And yeah, that the line is so chilling. I bet the Japanese didn't like it. It's like when he says that you are you are repulsed by like, why? Yeah, nobody liked it. Like, why would you say something like that? Like, what a gross thing to say. But that's uh-huh. that's the mentality they all had to create to be um to like allow themselves to do that that granted them he granted them what is the line he granted them the power to destroy themselves <laughs> that he had he had yeah. like made this possible he had his actions had led to the the death of all these people and the horror of that because, realization yeah yeah the uh, horror is the right word i think he's he's realizing that what led him maybe to make the bomb is not the same necess- it's not necessarily the same motivation that led people to drop the bomb. Mm-hmm. I think for Oppenheimer, so much of it is about this scientific pursuit, this pursuit of the universal principles of the universe as expressed in quantum mechanics and then weaponized into a bomb. Like it was like an intellectual thing. And then once the bomb is dropped, he realizes that it's also a political thing. Like this is now a tool for our people to be victorious over another people, to destroy our enemies. And he somehow, I think, realizes with those stomping feet, and I think you're right to pull that earlier image of those stomping feet when he's on trial. In that, in the scene after the bomb, those those crowds are so happy and jubilant, and they're cheering him so long as he says the right thing. But when he doesn't say the right thing, he knows those feet are going to come after him as well. And I, mm. I think that's I think that contributes a lot to his his quandaries in the second part of the film where he's this sort of American hero, but deeply, deeply conflicted about the course of American policy and American actions in the world based on the things he made possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I know there's disagreement about if the people were actually, you know, were the people actually crying or was that part of his vision? You know, was that something he was just seeing in the moment? Um, because every the crowds looked all happy and jubilant, yeah, <laughs> uh-huh. they were celebrating. But what what were they celebrating? Um, 
of course, for us, it looks quite, yeah, it looks quite inhumane to be, to be celebrating, but we weren't there. And also, you know, honestly, when he, when that, I heard those marching feet, I thought incorrectly that he was hearing the sounds of like not Nazis marching, that he oh, was kind of thinking, um, oh, the, this was what I wanted. This was what I wanted to avoid. This was the thing that was haunting night haunting me and so this is why i created this but yet those were nazi feet they were they were american feet that were in the bleachers Uh, and so that's kind of um that's kind of wild to to think about too is that the the people you know for the japanese were the were the americans like the nazis in that moment like did we become is that what who we were to them and that's has its own horror behind it to speculate upon Oh, I, I love that point. You know, this extreme nationalism expressed by the Nazis. The, of course, the Jewish people are the folks who've borne the brunt of that, which Oppenheimer is Jewish, which leads to his motivation to create the bomb. And now he's feeling, oh my goodness, that those forces of nationalism, very powerful forces, I've now equipped them to perpetrate horror and genocide on a different group of people. And I mean, that, that has to be a terrifying moral experience for him, right? Mm-hmm. Well, they made that scene terrifying, so (laughs) (laughs) Christopher Nolan did a good job with that. Uh, Yeah, we've kind of alluded to the score already and how it adds, but what are your thoughts about Ludwig Göransson's score? I I mean, I thought it was was quite powerful. I I think I was drawn in a lot of ways more to the the sound overall in the film and just uh, the explosions and whatnot, so... And I'm not a I'm not a musician, so mm-hmm. I, I may have missed some pieces. But I, I do think Nolan films, whether it's Hans Zimmer or Gorenson or whoever, they're always interesting musically, and they tell you a lot. So um, you highlighted earlier the, the the music and the montage. Were there other parts of the score that that jumped out to you? The Trinity Test itself has the the parts leading up to it before. I mean, the silence is very. I mean, the use of silence in music scores is very powerful as well. But that the test when they're kind of driving around and getting it all ready and doing the stuff there's he uses a lot of like discordant moments where the you know the notes are pushing up against each other and so i guess it gets that oh we're getting ready to to release the (laughs) the fusion or the fission you know we're gonna we're gonna release that stuff and so almost the score reflects that you know physical reality of what's going on with those atoms all like <laughs> bumping up against each other yeah yeah i think that's totally right but yeah i mean i always like the loud scores <laughs> it adds to that sensory experience so i'm i'm like make it loud i'm okay with with that but yeah the the silence is nice too knowing how to use that um and there's like i haven't gotten a chance to listen to it as much as i do i did with tenant um, and I haven't gotten to listen to any interviews. I always appreciate hearing him talk about his music and the ideas in it because, you know, with Tenet, he wrote music that you would be able, when you when you listen to it backwards, it sounds the same. So it just... It's Is that like, right? Yes. <laughs> so the score... Oh um, and it, there's actually an inverted version of the score, too, so you can listen to it, but it's it's just wild the level of the level of work he puts into his scores and i'm still pissed that he didn't win best score that year for the oscar or even get nominated because this is just a level of of craft that i don't think people always recognize and um and i you know i get i get angry when i think about that too much so we'll move on to okay 
but yeah, I, I think he the I heard the primary instrument he used was violin, huh. um, also to be to pair with the person of Oppenheimer, and that mm-hmm. goes with many of the things we've been talking about him being, you know, an instrument almost to himself. Yeah, that's nice. So, were there other things about the movie you want to praise or critique that we haven't we haven't touched on yet? Well, I think we've given a lot of praises, so we can, <laughs> I'll come back to those maybe. I think one critique that I caught more in the second viewing than the first, especially in the first half of the film, there's a number of conversations where someone says to Oppenheimer, whether it's Chevalier or I think maybe Izzy or some others, like, Oppenheimer, you see beyond this world. Like, Oppenheimer, you're so important. You're, like, the most important thing. Of course we'll take your child for you. Of course we'll, you know, like, you're so exceptional, um, oh, I think, oh, actually, I think Kitty says something like this to him as well. Is it basically like, it's okay for you to be not great in these ways, but you're, you're a great man. And some of that just doesn't work for me. It, it just kind of clanged in my ears. Um, this sort of, like, we need to like establish that he's a great man. It's like, um, you know, just, just show it, which I thought they had shown it. So it felt like the lines didn't need to be there. Um, which I think when I talk about Christopher, Christopher Nolan being a little pretentious, I think it's some dialogue like that, that does it for me mm, i see yeah um, and and then sorry one more critique mm-hmm. i would say so i used to be a history teacher and i think there's doing a biopic or historical films is always kind of complicated because you know the outcome right you're telling stories about people who didn't know the outcome but we do know the outcome and so it's really hard not to write dialogue in particular scenes that isn't inflected in some way by your knowledge as a writer of the outcome of the events. And so I felt like there were a a number of places, and I'm trying to think of the most obvious one, where it was like, oh, well, the most obvious one is the scene with Jean where they're in a romantic situation and she has him read Sanskrit. um, Behold, I am death, destroyer of worlds while they're Mm -hmm. making love. Um, Which, of course, is a famous thing that Oppenheimer said 20 years after the detonation of the bomb in a documentary about the the trinity test it's a fairly famous line and nolan works it into the script twice <laughs> yeah and i just that just kind of took me out of it from a historic like she did that scene didn't happen she didn't say that or she didn't ask him to read this he didn't say <laughs> that um i don't think it's necessary for this movie <laughs> so yeah that's a nitpick oh well that's interesting because i actually started listening to the audiobook and i was wondering if that scene is you know if that if that scene is in the in the book at all but the audiobook oh, please is very, let me know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the audiobook is very long it's like 23 hours so um i didn't get very far it's like 700 pages right <laughs> it's a really long i think it's a really long book but i was very curious what the book would have to say about jean and their relationship um you know, I think that that scene, I don't know, that that scene worked for me, I guess. But I can understand how it's like, oh, you really wanted to put that quote in there. So you made you made this scene. Um, I think what it did, if anything, was establish that their relationship was intellectual as well as sexual. So they were trying to show like, oh, these two talked about these ideas and they had, you know, they had this basis for stuff that was more than just an affair. Um, yes. 
But yeah, and, and again, I'm trying to say, do I have any? Do I have any critique? I thought some of the. I think they were supposed to be dramatic, but some of the trial um, slash hearing scenes. There, there was the one that I saw actually um, spoofed that was funny, where the the <laughs> guy is really going after um, Oppenheimer and trying to get him to admit that. When did you start having this guilt about? Was it before, after we did the H bomb? You know, when exactly did you start feeling bad? And he's he's really like just pounding into him. And there's this really funny video I found that was like, if Twelve Angry Men was a Christopher Nolan movie, and it's like <laughs> people, it's people like in that movie with like just loud music on top of it for no reason. Um, so when I saw that scene the second time, I had to, it had to like really close my mouth to like st- keep from laughing because I was like, yeah, that is kind of <laughs> what it's like. They're having a normal discussion, but the music's just super loud on top of it to make it really stressful. So now I'm kind of like, you know, why did they, why did they feel a need to make that scene that way? It's almost overly dramatizing that, that kind of moment, but it is supposed to show how, how stressful it is for him. And he um, he finally says, which I think is a great line, he said, when I realized that no matter any weapon we created, we would we would find a way to use it. And I think that was a great line. Um, and so, but yes, that, that scene forever now will make me laugh from that spoof video about 12 Angry Men, so. <laughs> yeah, Jason Clark is really going for it in that scene. Um, <laughs> it's it's great but it is it's intense (laughs) yeah he's he's played interrogators before so i guess he comes by it honestly Uh, um it's true one of the one of my wild takes about this movie is we we mentioned there will be blood yes when i saw the photos the like studio photos for this movie i was like he looks this reminds me so much of there will be blood and like daniel plainview sitting there on the porch with his um, pipe, you know, sitting there yes. smoking, creating this little this little town, and he's like, "We're going to have schools. We're going to have churches." <laughs> you know, yes, I love that speech. Yes, <laughs> I'm an oil man. <laughs> yeah, it's. I was like, I've actually, I'm actually like, so much of these movies ha- are in common. You know, there's this person bringing people together to create a product. Um, the yeah. person doesn't have very good relationships with other people. <laughs> um, or with their then, son. Yeah. Yeah. They create this little town with schools and everything very quickly so that they can bring everybody and not let them leave. <laughs> so um, <laughs> it just struck me how I was like, <laughs> I just was wondering if I was the only one imagining, imagining that. But those, they're both oh, I... movies about that are about like, kind of this one particular character and the the giganticism of them and their presence and so it just struck me as a thing i love this connection it's my favorite movie of all time there will be blood so i'm right with you and (laughs) another connection is that oppenheimer gets everybody in this town to create this you know big scientific advancement the nuclear bomb Mm -hmm. Plainview gets everybody there to strike oil right two of these really, really vital technologies for the 20th century for energy mm-hmm. in, in the United States and the world, uh, both centered on these complicated men who achieve greatness and then you know, disintegrate over time. Be the, um, who would be the Eli character in Oppenheimer? Off- in off- <laughs> yeah, I was wondering, um, you know, what's the equivalent of the, the bowling alley scene at the end? <laughs> yeah, that, that scene may not 
may not have an equivalent, although Strauss doesn't end up in a good place. Strauss, yeah, you know? Strauss. <laughs> I think Strauss is the Eli Sunday. Uh, oh, man, Eli. Talk about a memorable, <laughs> pathetic guy. Oh, okay. So and any other well, thoughts before we close? Well, I you threw out There Will Be Blood as a similarly structured story. I was thinking of the play Hamilton. Okay. Right? There's this there's this prodigy who's traveled around the world, who's rushing about like he's running out of time. Mm-hmm. He has this revolutionary breakthrough, but then gets mired in politics that are connected to his own ego. And then he suffers. And finally, the final act meditates on his legacy. Uh, who lives, who dies, who tells your story. Right. Oh, I like this. Oh, yeah. This is making was... sense. <laughs> <laughs> This actually probably maybe even works better than There Will Be Blood. (laughs) But yeah, like... We should... Go ahead. I was going to say we should write the musical of Oppenheimer. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We could have dancing, songs. It'd be great. Yeah, I think that's that's a good tie-in with, like, who lives, who dies, who tells your story. Because there's even the moment where Oppenheimer says, is anybody ever going to know what really is happening right here? Like, this trial... And I know it sounded like I was joking about the samurai thing, but I do really think about how kind of countries in general, they have these very intellectual, like these people that are like the finest minds in the country, right? You have your scientist community, your artist community, and often the government will like rally around these people. And it's not just in the United States, but the government rally around these people, want to bring them in and gets them involved. And it was just, it was kind of remarkable that as soon as he got the the bomb, they were like, they came to pick it up in the truck and they were like, this is no longer your problem. Um, nice work. And, yeah, and right. so he's left out to dry. And I guess the, you know, the inevitable conclusion that came out of this, um, and this isn't part of the movie, but it was from then on, it was decided that scientists would no longer have security clearance from then on. Scientists would just be scientists and they would this, you know, Oppenheimer, this Oppenheimer situation is what determined that. But as you can see, the scientists weren't happy about that. And that's why they came to rally around him at the end is like, no man should be asked to justify himself for sharing his opinion, which is really all that he did. And, and now you're, you're attacking him, but it was, it's just kind of like, yes, thank you for your service, and now we've hung you out to dry. And that sort of leaves those fine minds feeling very used up and tossed aside. And, you know, <laughs> you know Einstein talks to him about him getting a plaque one day, and they, you see that. Yeah. You know, he's like, he gives them, they give him a little plaque and pat him on the head. And, um, but yeah, there's no real place for you here now that you've done this. And so it was... Um, he lived the rest of his life in exile, kind of, just <laughs> retiring at his at his house. So, yeah. But what are your what are your final thoughts about Oppenheimer as a person or this movie? Well, I think I think well, it, it made me want to read the book. It sounds like you went back to it too, an audiobook, maybe a little bit. But I I'm fascinated, and I'm fascinated by Oppenheimer, but I'm also fascinated by the time period, and I think the film really captured that tension between American ideas, communist ideas, and what was happening in World War II, you know, fighting the Nazis, fighting fascism. But always that, like, question mark, like, should we really trust the Soviets? Are we really, who's the real enemy here? 
And then after mm. the war, it shifts so quickly to being about fighting communism. And so the very people who helped you know, the United States win World War II with their allies who had communist sympathies, all of a sudden, when they're no longer needed to win the war, become expendable or problematic. And I thought the movie just captured that, that historical, those currents and then the historical shift to anti-communism so well. I mean, just the absurd lines of questioning where the lawyer's like, you know, would you hire Oppenheimer today for the AEC? And it's like mm-hmm. an absurd question, right? Like the AEC didn't exist then. <laughs> it exists because Oppenheimer created the bomb, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think the film, and maybe it's just because I like history, but it makes me want to dive deeper into the history of, of his life and of that time period. So I, I think the film's, yeah, kind of endlessly interesting and and there's just more to chew on. So I'm I'm here for it. Yeah. I will say the other, the last thing I kind of wanted to mention is this movie was inceptioned in Tenet. You know, they had a scene in Tenet where they talk about Oppenheimer. Priya and the protagonist talk about Oppenheimer. And so I was like, Oppenheimer was in Tenet this whole time. That was his next movie. And so it makes me wonder if he's inceptioned his his newest movie in Oppenheimer. (laughs) (laughs) And oh, and yeah. what it might That's be. That's a good idea. So, yeah. <laughs> Do you have any any uh, any ideas? I, I really don't. But it's just it's just an idea that's like <clears throat> it makes me want to kind of go through it and be like, huh? Is the is the latest movie in here somehow an idea? Because there was you know the ending scene, of course, is pretty powerful about we started a chain reaction um, and the whole <laughs> the whole like. Oppenheimer was talking about me to Einstein. He says something bad. is is such an interesting, um, such an interesting character flaw that really stuck with me. Just because I know people like that that spend a lot of time thinking about what somebody might be saying about them, and they become obsessed with this idea so much that <clears throat> you know it kind of takes over. And so that's just a very real thing that. Um, that they showed they showed Strauss doing so perhaps it's perhaps the next movie will be about chain reactions somehow <laughs> oh I like that I also think Nolan might have like a political thriller movie to make you know I think I do think there was something in those uh, hearings trials and the political maneuverings I thought he captured those dynamics really well I know they didn't work for everybody who watched the film but I wonder if some kind of political intrigue movie could be there down the road. Ooh, or what about a, just a jury movie? Because there was a lot of stuff about trials. <laughs> um, yeah, like, like A, a Few Good Men <laughs> he makes his version. <laughs> just some, a trial movie in general. I think he could probably make a really good, a really good one because I was totally. entertained by these. It's like, it's not always easy to make a hearing uh, interesting, is it? <laughs> no, no, I, not at all. Yeah. Which, I mean, to his credit, he, he's made the big spectacle and the sort of intimate courtroom drama all in the same movie. That's quite a mm. feat. And both are really interesting and entertaining. So where would you say Oppenheimer sits in your, in your Nolan ranking? It's a good question. I probably, definitely top five. I think I need to give it a little more time uh, before I would go higher. Although, on, I've watched it twice now, and so I, I think it's higher than Interstellar for me. I need to watch Memento again. I know it was one that I named earlier, but I haven't seen it in a while. But it is is an important place in my mind. So maybe maybe it would surpass that. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's high. It's pretty high for me. What about you? Yeah, I'm not sure. You know, I really 
I really love his science fiction, so I don't I don't know if it's if it's in top tier. I think it's very well crafted. Um but but like you said, I think you'll have to have to sit with it a little bit. And I there's movies of his I haven't seen in quite a while, so I kind of feel like I would need to do a full retrospective um which I, I feel like I probably need to do at some point. Do a whole like Christopher Nolan thing. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I was thinking that I too. I should go through in order, right? Memento, was it Insomnia, and then mm-hmm. through the rest of them. I just It'd did. I did one of those for um, M Night Shyamalan this past year. I did a knock at the cabin to do that. I kind of had uh, there were two film critics, and there were three of us, and we talked about all of his movies. Ended up being like two and a half hours. It was kind of ridiculous, oh, wow. but um, <laughs> but yeah, it was fun. <laughs> But That's yeah, awesome. it would be a person I could I could definitely see talking about. But yeah, so Evan, we've now been we've now been talking almost an hour and a half. So I think we should we should bring this to a close. If people want to follow you and the Leech Podcast, what would be the best way to do that? Well, you can find us on Twitter at Leech Podcast and on Instagram the Leech Podcast, or you can go to our website theleechpodcast.com, and you can also search for us on wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Music, Spotify, wherever. Um, yeah, thanks for thanks for checking us out, and thanks for the chance to talk with you. This was really fun. And do you have any episodes coming up that you want to promote? We do. So at the end of August, we will be releasing an episode on the 2022 film The Batman, starring Robert Pattinson and <laughs> uh, and others, directed by Matt Reeves. It's a very, uh, very interesting movie. We had a good chat about that. Um, so you could yeah look forward to that uh, in at the end of August. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you, Evan, so much for joining me on this beefy discussion of Oppenheimer. <laughs> <laughs> beefy is one of my like favorite that. words. <laughs> it was beefy, there's, but there's a lot to chew on here. So I'm glad. Yeah, <laughs> I'm glad we did yeah. it. Yeah, thank thank you so much, and good night, everybody. This is one of my stories. Signing off. Bye.